we're live. Welcome back, resistors. I feel like I can say that now after last night's episode. Yeah, I feel like it fits much better. Much better. Hello, Resistance Radio. (laughs) Hello, Resistance Radio. This is John and Mark coming at you, the pop culture theologians. Welcome back. We are so glad you're here with us. Um, make sure you're following us on all the social media. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Pop Theologians and on Twitter at Pop Theologians. Um, shout out to our host site, The Engaged Gaze. Um, and Marcy, where can we find your Twitter profile so I can send you gifts of I Love New York? <laughs> Hey everyone, you can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can. Uh, I'm pretty active. I think I've spent like this whole week just retweeting different versions of that fish going through that tube that everyone has <laughs> memed. It has brought me more joy in the last couple of days than anything else. So, um, but yeah. There's some serious fish therapy bills going on here. Oh my gosh, it is it has been amazing. My favorite one so far is DuckTales, but like uh the Lady Gaga um shallow version uh is a very close second. And if you haven't you have seen to send that to me. I will send it to you. If you guys haven't seen this meme, um it's uh, go to my Twitter. <laughs> it's it's all over my Twitter. So um yeah. So we're recording from different cities than usual today. I'm recording in Orlando today. But Orlando is still in what state? It's still Florida. <laughs> it is Just still wanted, Florida. I don't want to scare anyone. But, but, um, I'm super, super excited. I know Californians have gotten a taste of it already, but um, this Saturday is the opening of the, um, it's not even the opening. It's still just previews. But uh, Brett and I scored preview tickets to be the first non-cast members to check out the new Star Wars um, kind of sector of Hollywood Studios. And we are completely freaking out. Like, um, Star Wars was pretty much one of my first fandoms. And so I'm super excited. We're going... uh, (laughs) We're going as C-3PO and R2-D2. So uh, I will post some pictures on Twitter for folks. (laughs) I'm so dorky. I'm (laughs) I'm so excited. I love it. And you have an amazing article on The Last Jedi on the engaged gaze. Just giving it a quick shout out. I loved The Last Jedi. So um, I think I've said this before, but it's actually a way that I test out whether or not I can be friends with someone. (laughs) So uh, if you tell me that you didn't like The Last Jedi, then I do not like you. If I was if I was dating, that would be like on my dating profile. Like, how do you feel about the Last Jedi? And then when someone's like, "Well, actually," I'd be like, "No, no, no. <laughs> we're good." No, so. like you're cute. Cute, cute, buddy. <laughs> and I'm so sorry because the next one's probably gonna like, like, totally I, destroy everything for you. I literally can't wait. December is going to be a magical month because we get the next um, Star Wars film. And then we also get Greta Gerwig's Little Women, the trailer dropped this week. I can't. I can't even. So I felt a lot of pitter-patters in my, in my like heart. Um, I know for most folks, the draw, well, okay, obviously the draw is like the March sisters and 
Um, it's an amazing cast, like Saoirse Ronan's leading Emma Watson, um, Florence Pug, uh, Murder Chick from Sharp Objects. Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep, Laura Dern. Um, just an incredible cast. Uh, I will say that like the, I think it was 1994, but like the 90s version with Winona Ryder and Christian Bale was like, I mean, fundamentally one of the first movies where I was like, like I felt seen and heard. I also like was like, so that's a fuck boy, like with Lori and it changed my life. And I watch that movie like all the time when like I'm having a bad day. And I, I think I reread the book like once a year around Christmas. Um, I'm also really excited about Timothy Chalamet taking on Lori. Um, but also, um, James Norton is playing, I don't, I never remember his name other than the dude Meg marries. And guys, that is not a spoiler. This book is from like a hundred years ago. Like get your shit together. Um, but if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I'm upset. I'm like obsessed with James Norton because of Grandchester on PBS, which is about a hot vicar who solves crimes. So um, yeah, no, I was super, super psyched to see that trailer drop. Um, I'm just so excited because people will no longer have to look at Susan Sarandon in the old one again. You know what? I hadn't thought about that, but I, I am kind of glad to replace Marmy uh, with a non pretty much like by default Trump supporter. So <laughs> yeah, the embodiment of evil white feminism. Oh, white feminism is everywhere this week, but I'd rather talk <laughs> about like, it's been a weird week news wise, like really weird week. But I would say that John and I were talking about this. I was like, Hey, instead of what the fuck this week, cause there's a ton of what the fuck. Um, I want to cover one, what the fuck. And I barely want to cover it. I actually just kind of want to resist. So uh, can you tell me how to pronounce Ken's last name other than twat? Because I don't actually know like how to say it. Ken it- douchebag Douchebaganelli. Cuccinelli. Cuccinelli. Uh, there we go. Uh, I, some, some piece of shit from the, uh, from the uh, Trump administration this week decided to, to change the words to the poem on the Statue of Liberty um, to kind of like adapt them for, you know, this like targeted attack on um hispanic immigration in the u.s which like is bananas like the statue of liberty like why don't i just want to imagine like the statue of liberty is such a like monumental like pillar of like america that like it's as ridiculous as if like you took some liberties with like the constitution and what a well-regulated militia means. Uh, no, it was just one of the craziest moments. If you haven't seen it, I retweeted it on my Twitter. Um, but he's like, you know, give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet, like, uh, and who can buy their own food pretty much. Like he literally added addendums to the entire thing. So instead of us covering a bunch of like different stuff, I thought we would just briefly tell you about um the poem and uh so like the poem 
which is technically a sonnet, was written by American poet Emma Lazarus um, in 1883. Uh, the actual plaque that is there now was installed in 1903. She was a uh, Jewish immigrant like an, and an activist for, for Jewish causes. So um, she's a Sephardic Jew. So we have like kind of like the same bloodline. Um, but in honor of the complete and utter desecration of her poem, uh, I think that we should read it. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, John? I think you should do it. Let's do it. So the, the um, sonnet is titled The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, each, keep ancient lands, you storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I don't even want to like... I want to just start with that, uh, with because I think it ties beautifully to this episode. That is who we are, and these like Nazis, brothers of Jacob wannabes, can keep trying to reframe who we are, but like, no. So Marcy, let, why don't we get into our discussion of the season finale of *Handmaid's Tale* season three, titled *May Day*. Very appropriate. Let's do it. All right. Okay. I, I love this episode. <laughs> do you? Yeah. I had, to th I had a long, hard think. I loved it. However, I'm done. Okay. So I think you, you and I feel very similarly uh, about kind of how this, um, how, how, how we feel about this um, this episode i will say that this episode has extreme highs and some lows uh and i think that that is important <laughs> so it had a lot more highs than lows though i will say that right right uh let's start with something that like you and i kind of both agreed with which is i love the idea that this episode is is titled may day and centers around the female resistance. And I even want to caveat that with, with, with like an extremely diverse resistance of women. Um, that is the strongest part of this entire episode, which is just to see women um, of every type of background coming together to resist Gilead. Yeah, it was incredible because I love the ways in which one of my points that I remember talking about was that I love that this the grassroots type of resistance with the soap the sandwiches they're packing it in like like 
tablecloths, as napkins. I mean, the ways in which they resist to get these kids out. I mean, it's really like, you know, one if by, one if by land, two if by sea, like very like American revolutionary-esque, like getting back to the roots, like we're going through the forest. They're throwing rocks versus having a gun. I mean, there's so much about the type wow, of- Wow, I didn't- yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even pick up on that. And if you really think about their tools of resistance, like we last week, you were very moved by the idea of loaves of bread being a form of resistance. And if you think about soap and, and like the idea of being of offering like to be cleansed, right? And like even um, and we'll get to it at the end of the episode, the use of stones in the face of of machine guns. Uh, yeah, like a very different um like kind of like feminine nature approach to resistance i i would say that the show is not covertly trying to mimic a bit of a like an underground railroad right um i saw someone refer to it as the fem road and um and i appreciated that um i don't think it's disrespectful to the underground railroad because of the fact that like um if there's anything that May Day and their network has shown us, it's that it's not the white women. Like the show does a very good job of like showing the problem with like white saviors, white allies. And, um, and particularly if you really look at the makeup of, of May Day, it's women of colors because it's women of beautiful colors, as one of my mentors would say, because the Marthas tended to be women of color. That has been a, something that like, um, I've definitely taken notice of while watching the show. So, um, so let's start off with the, um, which both you and I said was a strong point. This, the opening scene of this episode, I think is an extremely difficult episode to watch. Yeah, or an extremely, ep- to uh, not episode scene. Right, right. Um, we land in, a, we start this episode off in a flashback. Um, but it takes us a second as the viewer, which is obviously purposeful to figure out it's, it is a flashback. Um, and it's, um, it is a hundred percent. You brought this up a hundred percent, um, concentration camp imagery. Um, and it is right now for me, um, I think of the ice detention centers quite, quite, quite a bit. It actually hit very hard. Um, so the scene is June remembering early stages of Gilead when she was rounded up with other women. Uh, d- doesn't seem to, to know what was happening, which for us, the viewer lets us know that Gilead happened very quickly. And we know that from some of those, like, remember that like coffee scene with her and Myra where it's like all of a sudden her credit card doesn't work. And it's like, what do you mean? And the dude's like, uh, like, pretty much tells her to go fuck herself like it happened overnight you can tell that this evolution happened very very quickly Um, yeah it's very haunting too in many aspects because you can tell there are killing certain people i believe or rounding i I think i think it was really obvious so like june is being rounded up with these women and she's looking as she's being almost in what looks like a like packing plant or like a like a slaughterhouse and like the first women you see being rounded are women who are um disabled or handicapped or differently abled um like there's a purposeful showing us of a eugenics type lens that 
Gilead had implemented, um, which that made my stomach drop because I was like, okay, like we're, we're finally getting to the nitty gritty of like, what does it take to bring Gilead into like existence? Right. And it's like, yeah, like they would have euthanized anyone who was of, and I'm using air quotes of no use to them. Right. And, um, and then, um, the, the camera work is interesting because it's shaky and we're feeling the panic of these women as they're being pushed. They're watching these women who are clearly on their way to execution as they're being moved elsewhere and no one knows what's going on. There's one woman who I think would be you, John, who's be like, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to sue the shit out of all of you all. Like I, you, like you guys don't even know like how badly I'm going to sue you for this. This is outrageous, which means she still thinks that the, the norms that worked yesterday are still functioning today. Um, yeah. But June looks very scared and eventually works up the courage to, to like, to kind of tap a, an officer. And she's like, my kid, like my kid's been taken. Like, where's my kid? And the officer looks sympathetic. He's like, Shh. like, he's not rude to her. He's just like, I think because my guess is at the beginning no one particularly had signed up for all of this, right? I don't think they had a full vision of what was happening. And so um, it's, a, it's interesting, especially at a time where we have, you know, detention centers where mothers are being separated and ripped apart from their children and no one can even tell them where, where they are. Um, that, I mean, it's, yeah. it was real. it's a very powerful opening scene but also a reminder that like, like you said in your notes, like the Holocaust, like we've seen this happen. Like we've seen people be marched straight to their death. Um, We know that this happened to the tune of six plus million. Right. And like um, that, that, that there's a historical precedent for it. And now like we are living it right now. And that's what makes the handmaid's tale and covering it so interesting because here we are, you know, Especially with that Anne Frank quote going around most recently with those kids coming home, you know, to see their parents been taken away by the raid that happened in Mississippi. I mean, that quote so haunting. Right. Well, and I think something that like, it wasn't until this episode that I gave it like particular thought is, you know, the children born to Gilead have a different experience than the children stolen for Gilead right? Like there are kids who literally from one day to the next were just handed off to these religious fanatics who are like, I'm your mom. And it's like, they're not infants. Like they, they are, they must be terrified and confused and feel completely just, you know, out in the deep. So, um, which we'll get into more in a bit when we talk about June's plan to get children out. Um, so yeah, so uh, getting back to the grassroots kind of effort to get the kids out, um, this this episode kind of plays almost entirely the uh, the June plan, <laughs> her like Noah's Ark of children. But we do have some Waterford in, uh, scenes here. But like at the beginning, we're just watching uh, like multiple scenes of like the the build up to this like Noah's Ark, uh, which is the plane. 
Um, what did you think of the scene with the Martha that shows up just a tad bit too early? <laughs> I mean, that whole series of scenes that kind of happened in sequence were incredible because you see the lengths that June is willing to go to save her plan, um, but ultimately to protect these children. She will kill a, a mofo if she get in her way, okay? Like, and you see that how June has changed with her running after the Martha when she thinks it's been too long and, you know, she's gonna, you know, have to leave and she's gonna get caught and she tries to take the kid and then June basically walks upstairs very calmly, grabs a gun and then says, like, hell you are. And the Martha leaves and she almost shoots her. And then, you know, she has this beautiful scene with this little girl, which is played over at the end of the episode where the little girl will live in a town or a world and where she doesn't have to be told what to do and she can um, right. as wear what she wants. Um, and that, and it's really eloquent because you see that bond, but then you see on the flip side, how the real June, when she turns around after not killing the Martha and points the gun right at the little girl's face. And that's kind of like a, an eye opening moment for her, I think. And I think that moment is what ultimately led her to not stay on the plane. Well, okay, and so with this moment with the Martha and the the Martha who gets scared and then is like, I'm out, and we had um, Commander Lawrence's Martha who was sick that morning and Commander Lawrence like really astutely is like, yeah, she's afraid of dying, which is normal. Something's wrong with you if you're not afraid today. Um, we talked about this in multiple episodes now, but like, um, I'm going to put it, I'm going to phrase it in two ways. One, which we've talked about, we have no idea who we would become under extreme duress, right? Extreme trauma. Like we've talked about this with Emily. We talked about this with June. Um, like uh, who do I become when everything is lawlessness and I have no agency or power, right? So like, I don't particularly judge, um, June for pulling the gun because there are a lot of lives at risk over one scared Martha, right? Um, while simultaneously um, acknowledging that in that first scene, when uh, we get that flashback to the people being rounded up, June says like the reason they were able to do it is because they were ruthless and we were not. And like, that's kind of like haunted me all day um, because I say that a lot about the resistance right now. Like I, I have very, and I have friends that I love who will vehemently disagree with me and I'm fine with that. I don't have time, like I don't actually agree with Michelle Obama's like they go low and we go high. Like that's why we keep losing. Like, and I don't mean that we go low morally, but we have to go hard. And we keep confusing hard with low. Um, and, and when you're up against literally your own extermination, which, you know, communities of color have been up against their own extermination for so, I mean, since the inception of this country, right? There isn't a single thing in this country that wasn't built on slavery. Um, slavery has evolved in a million ways, um, to its modern colonization or imperialistic. Right. I was about to say, yeah, like, so like to like modern day, like incarceration systems, but also colonization, um, the eliminations of indigenous communities that were not 
like the use of, of of this trope of like savage communities, whereas there were thriving communities here that were that were like completely eliminated. Um, like I just think that if you are faced with this type of of aggression, the idea that to be aggressive back into fight is somehow a moral failure to me is is honestly like an attack on my my like how do i put it like i deserve to live like as a woman in this world as a hispanic woman in this world you as a gay man in this world i deserve to live and i will fight like scrappy as hell to not be eliminated by like white supremacy and misogyny. And like, that's just how I feel about it. And that's where June comes in with a scene with Commander Lawrence. Yes. Which is probably, I think there have been some real good doozies this season. This is probably my favorite scene of the whole season. I mean, talk to me about it. So basically this whole sequence of events really leads, you know, to June sitting at the kitchen table with a gun in front of her, kind of really understanding what she almost did. I mean, she almost killed this little girl that she really bonded with, right? Um, And I don't think she recognized, she saw the point of which she doesn't recognize herself and she didn't like it. But she, you mean she Dumbledore for a second and then felt real bad about it? For a second. And if you're following along listeners, there's your first Harry Potter reference, take a shot. So I think what you really get here is you finally get where June is at in the house and you finally understand who's the master here. Right. Right. And so, you know, June, I, I wrote this and one of the things that I've worked that worked for me is like June's kind of become this warrior and I'm like really obsessed with her and she's no one's being around with her at this moment, but, um, they have this really interesting conversation. So Commander Lawrence walks in and he basically is saying like, you know, we, uh, the time is changing. We're calling it off. And she's like, the fuck we are. And they get into this whole discussion because remember Commander Lawrence is like responsible. He's got a lot of blood on his hands and they say something. um, Commander Lawrence says the universe doesn't have a balance sheet. And June looks at him. She goes, yes, it fucking does. I literally was like, the fuck it doesn't. (laughs) I know. And so you're sitting there and you're seeing this and then he's like, you're going to cancel this thing. And she basically grabs a gun and she looks at him like very slowly, very Godfather like. Right. And she goes, you are not in charge. I am. Right. You re- and, or the best line is you really think this is still your house. And the show is doing what I would argue <laughs> is a better job than what Game of Thrones did in turning June into who she is now versus like what because of the three seasons of the trauma and the unraveling of what we got as a result, then just like this bait and switch that we get in one episode, like in game of Thrones. And I realize as I'm saying this and as I wrote it, I'm obviously still not over that, but the whole thing is the ways in which, you know, the trauma that June goes through in the past three seasons is real. It's there. We see it as viewers. We're all kind of waiting for her to like crack, right? While she's cracking and this is it. Like, she has this plan. She's willing to do what HBIC now, and she, one is stopping her. I almost thought she was going to kill Lawrence, but I'm kind of glad she didn't. And I kind of, at the end of that scene, you know, there's a certain level of respect, and she really is the master of that house then. 
Right. I, I think you and I just might disagree on whether or not that makes this show a better show, but I will agree with you that without the ending of this episode, this is an extremely strong message. It is yes. literally June um, looking like looking death in looking death in the eye, misogyny in the eye, toxic masculinity, uh, white male cisgendered patriarchy in the eye and being like, fuck you, this is my house. June right? does not have, like, she is not throwing up in the morning. She's literally, like, getting the soap. She's cutting it up. She's oiling the the gate. I mean, she is doing everything to get ready. I she, will say, I know for you, that is her becoming a lawyer. For me, it's her... Uh, her ability to be reckless in a way that like some of the other women cannot be, but also the recklessness that comes when there's, there's nothing to do, but to put your life on the line. Like I do think that the, and historically we know that when, when people have nothing to lose, they either completely rise to the occasion and overcome odds or they lose, like they die because like there's literally nothing left. And so June's rising, because I don't think the, the Commander Lawrence's assessment that she's, she doesn't feel fear is true. I think that she has now gotten to the point where the fear is, is it's huge, but it is under, like the fear is outweighed by the, in, the like indignant Mission. state of what is happening and she's the willing fact- to sacrifice everyone yes yes a hundred percent and i think that is super super important and i think i like you said like this harkens back to fred's very true assessment that gilead changed june and like yeah and that neither n- neither june nor luke would probably recognize <laughs> june anymore they don't and you can see definitely how fred and serena don't recognize june anymore um luke definitely doesn't recognize her um you know and i think you know i think the women are more in tune i think emily and moira do recognize i mean they understand like when she doesn't get off that plane but everyone else does they know what she probably did or maybe something happened to her um and they know who June's become because it's kind of like the secrets women keep amongst themselves and don't tell anyone um, because they just don't because that's, you know, the, the secrets that, you know, bear burdens on us internally, but the secrets we keep out of solidarity. Right. Um, and I think the ways in which I appreciate this, much like we've talked about female development in other shows where they just go off the deep end. I don't think that that necessarily makes it a good um, it, va- it makes it a good show. It makes her character arc make sense in some way. Like, I'm not saying that this redeems it in that way, but there is proof. Whereas, like, in Game of Thrones, you're kind of like, wait, what? She heard some fucking bells and, like, that's it? Like, what? Like, are you fucking kidding me? No. Right. Like, also, why is she left on guard? I'm sorry, whole nother episode. But <laughs> I promise you will be okay. <laughs> yeah, and but, maybe- like, I loved it. Maybe that's what I mean by the fact that like we see and it, we see heroes either overcome the magnitude or succumb to it. And I try not to judge either one because like it is perfectly okay to just be like, fuck it. Like 
I've reached my limit. Like I can't, like, I don't want to survive this. Like, I just want to like burn shit. Hashtag Daenerys. But it is, there's also something to be said about those who are like, you know what? I'm probably not going to survive this. So I'm going to go out like guns blazing. But you said it when we were discussing last season in Game of Thrones. You're like, you're going to try to take my children? Dracarys. You're going to try and kill me? Dracarys. You're going to, you know, come at me and take away my civil rights? Dracarys. Like, that's where June is right now. She's like, right. you're going to come for my children? Mm-mm. Like, you're going to come do this? Mm-mm. Like, and she's willing to sacrifice herself. Danny wasn't. You're going to try to not give me my raise this year? Dracarys. Dracarys. <laughs> so you're going to before- deny me my platinum entrance level to Disneyland on ice? Dracarys. <laughs> Or wherever you're going this weekend. Right. Um, so before we get to uh, the Noah's Ark uh, scene of this and and what happens afterward, um, I do want to touch on the very short um, couple scenes we get with Fred and Serena. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so Serena, we have first a scene where Serena gets told, like, you know, you really should start thinking about, like, what life looks like now that you're free and in Canada. Like, you can have your own apartment. You can have all this stuff. And she literally is like, oh my God, I'm, I wouldn't even need a chaperone. And she's like, this scene, I think, reads very differently for different folks. Um, I know there are people who are still kind of like really hoping Serena somehow has a redemption arc. She doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't. She never will. I am very excited about this episode proving me right on this. Um, I mean, we... I mean, I don't think either of us thought she was going to get off scotch-free. No, but I mean, on Twitter, there are tons of folks who are like, if Redina, if Serena can't redeem herself, then what does that say about like, like Trump, Trump women who now feel real bad? I'm like, well, they should feel bad. Yeah. I don't, I'm so sorry. People that, women that voted for Trump. Right. Like, Hello? You do, like, you don't get to be an ICE agent and then like 10 years from now be like, I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah, like winning medals. Like, sorry, no. You, and like, no. Um, and also, you will eventually be tried for crimes against humanity. So, you know, get your shit together. Um, but from a religious trauma perspective, I do want to touch on the fact that, like, this scene, very similar to when Emily is being reintroduced into society, is really reminiscent of, like, of what it feels like to, to come out of a cult. Like, I, like, and, and, like, religious um, extremism. Like, the things that, like, boggle your mind and that also, like, carry heavy weight to a normal person wouldn't make sense. Like, so Serena's, like, I get to go out without an escort, right? Like, I, I could have my own apartment. Like, I remember when I left my, like, really stupid Catholic cult there were a bunch of things that caught me off guard. Like once I had kind of once, cause it's actually when you and I met John, like you and I met like right after I left. And like, it was the fact that I could wear whatever I want and no one was going to talk to me about modesty issues and whether or not I was putting men's souls at risk. Um, it was that I could, that I could live with a dude. I lived with you. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't sinful that um that I could question readings in class from a place of like dissent not loyalty to certain like doctrine 
um, and not be looked at like I was like, you know, one step away from like burning out a stake, right? Um, that there were men in the world who were not terrified of women and who did not view women. And this is for me. So I'm not talking like, I'm not, I'm not talking Gilead. The fact that there were men out there who did not view all women as breeders, like the, or, like the organization I was in, you either became a nun or you literally were chattel to be bred. And they would say, hopefully you'll give birth to more priests. It was like, I was like, like, so like this, this scene from a human perspective as someone who has left like crazy fucking shit, it made sense to me that Serena was like, I hadn't even thought about the fact that like I could walk to Publix by myself, TJ's by myself. Like, and I, and I think that that is, and the fact that her, her clothing is still extremely modest, it took me a very long time to teach myself to not apply modesty and purity culture to my body. I'm still unlearning modesty and purity culture. Like, and it's been, uh, we're going up on like um, 10, 11 years since I left um, extreme Catholicism, evangelical Catholicism. So, so this scene with Serena is, is interesting to me as a survivor of uh, religious trauma. Uh, Serena's happiness does not last long. Tell me why, John. Um, because here she thinks she's about to get privileges where she can walk off and, you go know, hang out outside, go to TJ Maxx, go get a latte from Starbucks. And then basically Commander Waterford um, spills the tea that, oh, by the way, Serena instituted Nick, who, by the way, doesn't show up in this episode, so we have no idea what's going on. Oh, there. we'll talk about um, it. Yeah, she, um, she commandeered and Nick she facilit- into raping so in raping June so that way she could have a baby that they would then make Commander Waterford think was his. This was an interesting turn of events. I a hundred percent expected Fred to turn on Serena. Um, what I what I think is interesting is uh, this like this is stupid writing. So um, I guess then again maybe not. I guess Serena had painted herself as a willing participant while simultaneously being a victim of Gilead. Um, so this would be like, uh, this, that she, she was there because she supported Gilead in the beginning, but never thought it would end up the way it was. It was horrifying, but like, I'll turn over my husband. Like I will become a part of the resistance, whatever that means. Cool. Uh, which is what got her immunity. Uh, when Fred says, yo, what side, like she wasn't like Gilead adjacent. She like, like that child. I didn't even know about this shit. I didn't even know that she forced Nick, who we know was much more than a driver to the waterfords because we had that one episode with him. Uh, she forced him to rape her. And then Serena tries to defend it by being like, yeah, but they, they were like in a relationship. It's still rape if you forced him to do it, right? The dude's like super clear. He's like, take the baby, put her in handcuffs, put her in the dungeon, whatever a dungeon looks like in Canada, which is probably like an Ikea showroom. Um, but I felt like a real sense of Shorten for it in that moment. I, I think it could have been done better. Or it could have been more dramatic. Like it did feel like a little, like, I'm like, really Canada? You thought Serena Joy was like just completely innocent like that's just stupid like it's just stupid 
that they would have offered. We talked about this last episode, the whole immunity, the whole idea that anyone would let Nicole be around Serena when like, if you've read the books and even in the first season and some of the second, you get flashbacks. She's literally the face of Gilead. Like, come on. She wrote books on which they base some of Gilead off of. Like, no, it's stupid. But it was nice to see her kind of be like, shit. And it's like, yeah, girl. Called Schroedenfreud. <laughs> so. I... I think it's a stupid storyline and if anyone understands their immunity deal and I've been reading this online, like it doesn't see how that applies. So, but whatever. Like I agreed. I like from a writing perspective, I was like, you, you needed more than this for her to lose her immunity deal. Also don't tell me that Myra didn't know any of this. Like Moira knew. And so like Emily knew, like, no, it's just, no. Like, again, this is sloppy writing, but I'll take it if it puts the Waterfords in jail in Canada, because maybe real honest, the most interesting scenes of this entire season were in Canada. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Um, okay. So moving on to Operation Resistance, Operation May Day. Um, we have like a really sweet scene of Commander Lawrence trying to calm the kids and the Marthas and handmaids and everyone by reading to them. I I felt something in that moment. (laughs) And I, I know I'm being a hypocrite because I'm like, fuck Serena. She's an architect. So is Commander Lawrence. Um, but he's shown actual contrition. I mean, look, he would still be cro- he would still be tried for crimes against humanity and would probably be killed. And I would be totally fine with that. But if we're talking about nuanced characters, this is such a beautiful moment of like, maybe he can sleep tonight for a second because he's about to get 53 kids out and a bunch of handmaids and Martha's out. And that, I mean, I don't, what did you think of that scene? I, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to logistically wrap my head around like Operation Mayday, but I think when we look at the ways because in which it's it, silly, <laughs> it's silly. But I guess like I have to suspend disbelief a little bit and like move forward. I mean, with all of them, you know, they're basically trying to get these kids across this area to the airport, and there's this really like you know moment where they're going through the woods. You know, I mean, all the stuff that they're That's doing, scary. right? It's scary. It's, I mean, it's, there's so much Holocaust imagery and symbolism and, you know, just overall rhetoric that's, you know, signifying the plight of, you know, what happened to the, Jew- the Jewish people during World War II and other people who were killed and persecuted by the Nazis, right? right. And so it's, you know, troubling but you know they get there and they see a car people with guns they have nothing and they have to cause a distraction and june's you know pretty much willing to sacrifice herself but then there's kind of like a girl power moment i think i will call it and you know the marthas and the closest you know handmaids you know they start chucking rocks at this car so they can sneak the kids out into the airplane and you know a battle commences really that's really stones versus guns Right. I'm going to challenge you for a moment on the fact that like June um, like has this heroic moment where she's like, I will save them. Like, I think that 
um, once the once they realize that for the plane to safely leave, they're going to have to create a distraction because they need to sneak the kids into the plane. We see June go first, but the hand, the other handmaids and Martha's were always coming in the sense that like, I thought that was a huge challenge to us viewers to stop centering the story of resistance around June. Um, like June is not the, the savior of this plane. It's all of these women who, who literally did everything to get these kids on this on this plane left the lives of these kids in the hands of the capable who could get enough to get it done but knew that their role was to potentially sacrifice themselves to create this distraction and decenter this from june um, june is one of the many women similar to like um it's, it's so i don't know if you know this margaret atwood when she first put was writing the book she wanted to call the book um, off read and then decided against that and called it a handmaid's tale because it was an off read story. It was the story of all of the women. Off read was, was, was just one of many. Yeah. And she's one, she's one journal, you know, ultimately that you see. Right, right, right. So I, 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 I accept that challenge. Yeah. I like the fact that like, um, it's not some like J June is Jesus. It's like, nah, yo, like Although that you women, carry her out at the end of the episode. I'm just saying there's we'll always talk, a we'll, we'll talk about We'll talk about that. I, I, I was happy with this episode right until kind of like the end. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the, um, you're right. The women take stones and start like throwing them at the folks who could potentially intercept the children on the way to the cargo ship. And um, the throwing of stones for women is historically a way in which we die. Right. Um, up until not too long ago in like in American history, even and still today in many places in the world to be stoned to death is a woman's death. So the fact that to, to, they use stones as their protection against legitimately like killing machines, machine guns and get the job done to the point where the plane is able to leave is such a powerful moment, not only of like radical bravery, but a radical reimagining of what resistance looks like. They didn't need AK-47s. They didn't. They didn't need body armor. Like they, they just needed the will to do it. To fight back. To fight back. And I think that that is like just absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, and they really send people up with those rocks. I was like, yo, where are those rocks coming from? <laughs> I know those are some big rocks, but it's genius, right? Because you show like where the distraction and they get the kids out. Oh yeah. It's just stunning. It's stunning. Um, so then we move on to what I'm going to say is maybe the most, um, I know there were a lot of visually powerful scenes in this season, including a lot of the DC scenes um, or scenes that gave me shivers where I was like, holy shit, like when Nick walks onto that plane and everyone salutes him and I'm like, wait, what did I miss? What did I miss? But I will say that the the following scene when the plane lands is maybe one of the most poignant scenes this series has had. Um, I, it is a heartbreaking like scene. Um, when uh, the plane lands in Canada, um, and I love how Margaret Atwood has made Canada kind of like this utopia. Like, 
I, I'm like, I get it, girl. Like, I've been to Vancouver. I've been to Toronto. <laughs> like, you guys are so nice. Um, but when the plane lands, we see Myra, we see Emily, we see Luke. They're all part of, like, the refugee resettlement. Like, I'm over Luke. No, you're not. And you're over Luke for personal reasons, but this was literally one of the most beautiful scenes in this entire show, John. <laughs> the scene was beautiful. Luke was not. You just hate Luke personally. He is one, like his character in this scene is so devastating. His performance, the actor's performance was so beautiful. Uh, But let's start at the beginning. So like, they don't know what's coming in on this cargo plane. It's, It's unannounced, right? Like, so they obviously know that whatever it is, it is clearly some form of resistance. Um... So when they open, like, you know, Myra, I think says, Moira says, like, let's be prepared for anything, right? Because, I mean, it could be a Trojan horse. For all they know, it's a bunch of, like, Nicks, right? Like a bunch of commanders ready to launch war on Canada. Um, but when they open the doors and they see the, the children, right? Like, just like a sea of children, you can see all of them kind of go into shock. Like, it is one thing to move adults out of Gilead. Um, it's a but, whole nother thing to move that many kids. I mean, they really struck a big blow to the to Gilead. Kids are the bargaining chip in Gilead, and they're also the hot, like, literally the hottest commodity in Gilead, the most valued, most sacred thing. Um, it's just, so obviously Moira is taken back, and she talks to the young girl at the front and tells her that she's safe, right? Like, you're going to be safe, everything's okay, and like her question is so sweet because for a 12 year old, it makes sense to me that she's like, is this somewhere where I can like wear whatever I want? Like, am I free? Her question is essentially, am I free? And like Moira is so taken aback by that. Like you can tell she's like holding back tears and, um, and she like walks down, like they start like escorting the girls down. Right. And, um, and you see Luke kind of scanning the girls. And then this young girl that Moira had, talk to um Emily is like doing her intake and Emily's like what's your name and before she can get it out like she legit sees her dad behind Emily who is doing this work right so like imagine what are like and I know this is a a show but the chances of you doing I listen to like a ton of crime podcasts because I'm a glutton for punishment and like the chances of you ever finding like a missing daughter like if your daughter goes missing, there is a 99.9% chance you will never see her again, right? So like this moment is so stunning and beautiful, but what makes it so beautiful isn't particularly these two characters we don't know. It's how hard it hits Luke. It, like his face, like it's, it takes everything for him to hold himself together because that's hope. And like, again, listening to crime podcasts, every time a girl is found, like a J.C. Duggard or something like that, what that does for families who are still holding out hope for daughters that have gone missing, it's devastating. Like I've, I've read and like I've read interviews, I've listened to stuff like it doesn't actually make them feel better because it reopens the wound and fails to give them closure. 
and this is a very you know white narrative in many ways i mean because when we think about the missing and and murdered indigenous women and women of color that go missing and the types of attention that is given to them versus like when let's say a john benet ramsey goes missing is not comparable like comparable to anything and you have um luke who is good in the scene and you understand that he's looking for his daughter but he understands maybe his daughter is still with his mother or plays a bigger piece in the puzzle um i ultimately think the scene and the series ends with either june dying or luke getting back you know his daughter or something of that matter but the ways in which you know missing women and missing girls when they're gone you know, depending on the color of their skin, get this completely in our world, even though Gilead's not too far off, get um, silenced um, is scary. And we see that happening here because we see this longing. And that's why the scene where the little girl finds her father um, is so powerful compared to what Luke is looking at. Well, I will say, um, I don't think this little girl's race plays a, a role in why in Gilead she's she's found her dad and Luke has not. Like we've we've talked about this on the show race is not a factor in handmaids or children so when the commodity is a child and a fertile woman we saw that race actually falls to the wayside um and then you do bring up a good point that like in our own world um the response to missing women can be very 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 different um based on race and ethnicity i do want to undercut that with the fact that like um the there there isn't a like white women getting uh abducted and murdered and killed is that doesn't diminish indigenous women getting abducted rapes killed missing uh the problem is how law enforcement has reacted historically and currently right now, like there's a huge problem of missing indigenous women. And the problem is the resources in those communities. I was in Standing Rock a couple, um, like maybe like three or four weeks ago, those communities, you know, like the closest like officer to some of these communities can be two hours away. And, um, and because of historical displacement and other like historical trauma that the communities experience, um, it is hard sometimes to know whether or not women have gone missing. Um, and they do have a problem getting these issues taken, taken seriously. But I feel like absolutely uncomfortable saying like, to a certain extent, like, it's a fucking racism problem. Like white women that go missing all get found. Like white women that go missing, 99.9% .9 of them, like do not get found. And, and cops do not take those cases seriously either. Uh, all you have to look at is rape kits uh, blindly, like ethnicity completely, like rape kits don't get checked. Um, when women, women go missing, when uh, young women of any ethnicity go missing, um, the, the response to it, I mean, we're thinking of like sensationalized stuff on like Nancy Grace and stuff like that. Sure. Nancy Grace loves to like pinpoint, um, uh, you know, these like stories and sensationalism, but overwhelmingly uh, women in general are an extreme risk in any public situation. And if they go missing, they will probably never be found. Most are killed brutally. Most are sexually brutalized. Um, and yes, occasionally there's like 
white stories that take uh, take take precedence. Like um, it's been very great to see indigenous, the especially the indigenous women getting attention, but overarchingly, all all women are. This is like a it, it is an extreme problem that never gets the attention it needs. Um, and the amount of human trafficking that happens in the in the U.S. in Indigenous communities and Latino communities and in white communities, um, like if you're following Jeffrey Epstein, like I mean, he was literally poaching girls from prep schools. So, like, I just want to be careful to not racialize something that isn't racialized. Uh, the the abuse, killing, abduction, and everything of women is not racialized. The response to it is racialized. Sorry, I just, I feel really strongly about that. And that's what I mean. I mean, I don't think that the girl's race has anything to do with the storyline. I'm just bringing out the point of like the responses to the kidnappings is very racialized. In, in, in our, yeah. In, in, in our world. In our world, yes. In Gilead, no. no. Um, though I will say that we, we have seen prom- predominantly white commanders' wives, which you and I have commented on. Um, so, so yeah, so seeing Luke just the, like looking to see if maybe one of these girls is his girl, right? And I'm like, please, dear Lord, let me see this girl's bouncing curls come down. I was faces, wondering, please. but then we would have seen that episode with June. We would have seen the reaction with June. There's no version of her being on the plane that June doesn't get on the plane, I think. Um, so... Uh, it's so sad, but then in a moment of real beauty and kind of like, I would say not rebirth, but like solidarity, uh, Rita is having a moment. She literally, I think, can't believe where she is. And she kneels almost to kiss the ground. And Emily sees her and calls out to her. She's like, Rita. And like, Rita recognizes her, but almost not. Right? And then she's like, she's off. Shock. Yeah, and she's like, it's off Glenn. And like, she just like throws herself out. They have this beautiful hug moment. And like Emily calls over to Luke and Luke comes over, right? And like, and Rita and Emily goes, you know, Rita, this is Luke. And like Rita's genuine joy at seeing Luke and like, and and putting a face to a name and like to a certain extent, seeing some fruit come out of this resistance, right? Because like, yes, Hannah is not on there, but like, like she says, like June did, like look at all June. Like this is June's like project. Like this is her. Like she she got us here, right? Um, it's so important because it um, it gives like not closure for Luke, but it reminds him that his wife is still fighting, and if she didn't come home, it's because she's gonna bring Hannah home. Yeah. Right, and I think that that at a minimum is easier to swallow than. Um, she might be dead. Right. Let's talk about that. Well, <laughs> I just want to say, one, I want to say though, one quick thing about the trauma we carry through these religious circles. And we've hit about this a lot this season is that even when June is having that beautiful moment with the little girl in the basement, um, and she kind of realizes that she can be free, they still pray. Right. Okay. And- I'm gl- I am so glad you brought this up. I really struggled with June's religiosity. So they pray, right? But you see June prays with her. Um, So that level of prayer in times of trauma 
bringing solace, but then I, I only bring this up is because it's like a second identity here, right? So there's um, these identities that these people are carrying and then there's the identity that they were forced to live and who they were. Um, and I think you see that too when Emily goes, it's, it's of Glenn, right? And she has to tell her like, I'm also carrying this double burden. I'm Emily, but I'm also but I'm also Glenn. Off Glenn. And I'll never get rid of that. Well, and like, I think, oh my, I'm so glad you brought this up. So like when I'm watching the episode, like when, um, when June is saying goodbye to Commander Lawrence, she pretty much says like, may God bless you and like keep you and like, and she means it. And like, there's a lot of scenes in this season where she has honestly showed religious piety. And uh, for, for folks who um, consider themselves religious on the podcast. This is not a critique of religion. It's a critique of a June that didn't exist on the page and is a very kind of confusing decision, I think, on the writer's part. Like the fact that June, and, and this is my own religious trauma coming through as well, like the fact that June still to a certain extent is, is, Carrying the same religious pillars that her oppressors have is very difficult for me to process because that is not how I read um, Offred in, in the book. And so like the fact that like the, the writers are clearly implying that it is because she is keeping the faith that she has survived this long is really hard for me as a survivor of religious trauma to be like, sure. Well, I think it's not. I'll push back a little bit. And I don't know if it's that. I think it's that it seeps in within you, right? Like even in times of struggle. I yes, think. of course. And I think that's where we're at more so. But the thing is, like, I, I would say that, like, there are, when, when, when Commander Lawrence is like, you're not afraid. And she's like, I'm a woman of faith. That is, that is like, that is a statement of who June is that she, I'm going to take her at her word for it. And I'm like, faith in what? Faith in the God that got you here. And like people who are religious will push back on me and be like, well, Gilead wasn't a fair representation of Christianity. Right. But like, okay. All right. But like, that's not how deconstruction works. And like, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from my own religious trauma. I know this because I have friends who have left the same groups, like the same type of like religious traumatic group that I left, who still are trying to find ways in which to like live out a religious truth for themselves that is separate from the trauma that we experience. I know what is coming through in me in this, and it's clearly trauma when I'm like, no, June, you reject Christianity as a whole because look what it's done. And, um, and I, I can honestly say that I know that that is unfair. And yet, because I love the June off-red, because she didn't even have a name in the, in the book, that's not the, the, the Mar Margaret At Atwood off-red. So, like, I, I struggle with that. Um, while also knowing that, like, I'm still sometimes, when, I am, when something, like, terrifies me, I pop out a Hail Mary. <laughs> right or like at christmas i get very mournful and and long for like christmas eve mass yeah or gregorian chant and some incense 
in like a beautiful empty cathedral. So like, I get all of that. I just don't think that's what, I don't think we're seeing the longing. I think June is still an actively religious person. And that to me is just kind of not, it doesn't gel with me. So I don't know. I know, I know people will disagree with that. Let's talk about that Christ-like imagery though. Well, and, and I think that's important. Um, so, so what happens when we get back to, to our May Day girls who save the day? So basically what happens is, is June still has the gun, right? But she has to get this other dude, kind of the last remaining guy away. And so, you know, she steps into the spotlight. So she draws attention to him and then she runs into the woods and he runs after her and she's running and he shoots her pretty close in the shoulder and knocks her down. Um, And then she comes up to him and then um, she... She's turns like, around. Tell them it's fine. <laughs> well, she turns around and she shoots him. Right. right. And he falls. And then, you know, he's the radio's going and she goes, Tell them it's all clear. And, you know, she's got this look where she's like, It's gonna be just fine. Tell them it's all clear. So he does. And then she shoots him at point blank range and he's dead. Dead. But then what happens is, is she collapses because obvi she's, she's like been shot. She's been shot really close in the shoulder, probably close to something, some, some organ. type of some and type of artery has, we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, she has her lost moment and she sees the plane full of children flying away. You thought of Jack as well. I did. And then yeah. the whole end scene happens. But then basically the episode ends because we're kind of like, well, what happened to June? And what you see is her lying completely still. So you think she might be dead. And then right. you see her eye move and yeah. you see the um, handmaids come. And they pick her up and they carry her off. And she has this really beautiful moment of her and Luke and her daughter where she's picturing them. And um, she recites a biblical quote. And she says, and again, reciting that biblical quote for me, like, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to take them at their word. June is still a religious woman. Yeah. And, and basically she looks right up at the camera again. We get one of those shots and she's talking to us and the episode ends. Right. Um, and we don't know where they're walking. Yes. Uh, and it is a very Christ-like scene. Um, it actually, for me, is reminiscent of the women at the tomb, right? They're all in red, very Mary Magdalene-esque, uh, picking up their, uh, their Christ-like figure I'm still laughing at the fact that Janine is part of the resistance. (laughs) Like Janine is about as safe in the resistance as commander Lawrence's wife was, but I, I, I love Janine. So I'm kind of like, all right, I'll suspend belief that Janine could possibly keep a secret. Um, Speaking of secrets, I have a question for you that I meant to ask at the beginning of this episode. Of course. When aunt Lydia sees Janine drop a soap, in her bag she has a very strange conversation with june she kind of says are like let me take a look at you are you behaving you know the girls look up to you don't put them in danger uh kind of like a i i watched that scene three times and every single time i watched it i am positive that i am supposed to interpret that scene as aunt lydia knows what's happening I think we'll find out next season. Yeah. 
And that's if they go back. Like, I don't know if, if Commander Lawrence is back in the game. Like, I don't know really who's we don't, there. We don't know where anything is. Like, we, so, you but I do want to say, I feel like there were hints that Aunt Lydia may have very well known about the May Day mission. Uh, we have no idea what happens with Commander Lawrence. We know that uh, Fred and Serena are in custody. We know that uh, Rita is now part of the pack in Canada. We have no idea where Nick is still, which is extremely frustrating. Um, do not bring that big of a storyline in halfway through to not finish it. And we don't know what is, we, one, we don't know if June is dead or alive, and we don't know what's going to happen to the handmaids and Martha's that survive the resistance moment, right? Like, they don't get to go home. Like, what happens to them? <laughs> like, um, yeah. So, so for, so as we move, so obviously this concludes like uh, the third season of Handmaid's Tale. Um, what would you like to see happen in season four? I want to see Serena and Fred get fried. <laughs> and I, and I do, I hope next season's the last season and I want to see Gilead go down in whatever form that takes. Like I want to have like my mocking Jay moment. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, and this is going to be controversial. I want June to be dead. And I think this show needs June to be dead for, for the show to be able to move forward. Like June is starting to become the type of character where like, she's like Teflon, which means I'm never afraid for June because June's not going to die. Um, I really, really, really wish she had ended up in Canada. And then next season sets up the war from, from the U.S. to Canada, right? And then yeah. we get Nick versus June versus like uh, kind of like the, the, yeah, like you said, like the war. Uh, disappoint, I'm like extremely disappointed that June is still in Gilead. I'm extremely disappointed that the probability is she's 100% alive. Um, but I do need next season to be a straight up full on war and I need June for it to not be June, like another June adventure of the season. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm coming back next season. Yeah. I have to, I have to sit with it. Like there's only so much I can watch June be June, June at all, June and all the women be beat raped and whatnot. And to a certain extent be like, like this isn't going like again we you and i have said this i i'm not doing walking dead gilead version yeah so. we're, we're on like season 30 right right and there's a tiger all of a sudden right right so so that concludes uh this kind of recap of the season finale and that also concludes is what is season four of the pop culture theologians yes yes so so exciting thank you everyone for kind of coming on this ride with us we know that this was kind of like a bonus summer season that kind of came in, in patches because we were on vacations and stuff but we've loved covering the show um and we're so excited for what comes next uh we caught up i'm just saying we caught up we 100 percent caught up and uh so what comes next is obviously his dark materials the purge is coming back in October. In October. Uh, Westworld is coming back in 2020. We are super, super excited about everything that is going to be coming back. Oh, Discovery of Witches is coming back as well. 
Um, so, so stay tuned. We will be back not too long from now. And we'll be throwing in some extra bonus content to tease up some of the fun seasons that we will be having coming up. A hundred percent. And if there's movies or stuff that like comes out that you're like, I want an episode, just tweet us. Like we have probably already watched it and could definitely cover it. So we'll do another recap of Crimes of Grindelwald just so Marcy can get over it. How dare you? How dare you? um guys we're so thankful for you listening like every time we see our viewer numbers go up it's so exciting um yeah so stay tuned and um blessed be the fruit y'all under his eyes